The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Radio Tony with Tony Lontis. Author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Your safe space for tough conversations, exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony. Building resilience, talking trauma. Radio Tony. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Radio Tony. Difficult conversations and bringing hope to listeners. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia on W4WN. Good morning, everyone in Australia, and hello, all our listeners in the US. We're live from the Gold Coast today where it's actually raining finally. Uh, We spent yesterday afternoon bucketing water on our big trees just to keep them alive and woke up this morning with the rain. So I'm guessing that I should probably bucket water on my trees more often if it brings on the rain. So this morning we have an amazing guest called Mr. Ray Jamison. And Ray remembers as a toddler old Cecil. He was a grizzled old man, a builder working on their house. Ray took a magazine to him that he'd copied a few letters out of uh, the page and written in white in the margin. He held his triumph up for Cecil to see and his words remained with, with Ray from that day onward. He didn't know that one day making it to the Get Even website, Ray's website, Wonderful, Cecil said. Now, if you learn to arrange those letters into words, people will be able to read them. That did it for Ray. He was hooked on words from that moment on. Everything about Ray Jamison, the writer, started that day. All through school, Ray was an avid reader and a student of words and language. He loved the challenge that an English test essay presented. The more he did, the better he got, and his writing became his way of expression. Fast forward and only the location and date have changed. All of Ray's years on the farm in his earth-moving business, through his corporate and business life, through to creating training programs and seminars and delivering presentations at every level, there has always been this initial expression of writing in the first. What Ray found was that when he needed it, he would sit with either a pen or a keyboard and the words and the messages would come through him, ready to deliver. Mostly, Ray didn't know what would appear on the computer screen, and this is called channeling. Ray is the first person who sees it. Before it arrives, he has no idea what's coming. So it's been with his books. To ask Ray Jamison about the origins of getting even is to ask about his writing. Ray says, I guess from the inner core, but I'm not fully conscious of all the stories and material I will bring through before it appears. I just get to read it first. Hello, Ray, and welcome to Radio Tony. It's such a privilege to have you on the show today. Um, I know that you're up at Cairns, but you're actually in Port Douglas today, aren't you? 
Uh, we haven't quite got to Port Douglas yet. There's been a couple of hiccups there, but I'm in Cairns and it's lovely to be with you. And is it raining up there? It has been raining for a couple of nights, but it's fine this morning. Uh-huh. Listeners, just so you know, there's a little bit of a cyclone low system up off the coast of Queensland, which usually means rain for the northern Queensland uh, area. So, Ray, I thought that we'd start today by talking about you and your upbringing. What was that like for you? Well, I had a, a I guess in some ways it was a rather privileged upbringing, um, I grew up on a farm in southern New South Wales in Australia. Yeah. Cool and temperate climate, a long way from where we are here, thousands of kilometres south. Wheat and yeah. sheep mainly. It was an ideal family environment, a family of four kids and mum and dad. Uh, they're yes. both still alive, 85 and 86. And cool. Very healthy. Um, great family values. And one of the things that was really important to us and to me personally was that they used to read to us as children. It's one of my fondest childhood memories. And uh, I guess that has been a huge inspiration for me as well. Yeah. So um, you grew up liking books. Oh, I love books. Uh, Dad made a, uh, a library for us because uh, um, in the 50s, 60s and so on, there wasn't a real lot of money getting around on the farm and he made all of our furniture. And one of the things he made was a big corner bookcase and filled it with yeah. books. And I'd read them all by the time we were about eight or nine, I think. Even some of the uh, more interesting ones like Drums of Myrrh and so on, Mum would say, do you really want to read that? It's all about ritual sacrifice in the Pacific and so on. Oh, yeah, it's all good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I I devoured everything that was written. Yeah. Leo, uh, Ray, Leo wants to know, have you always been able to do this type of thing? So I'm... I'm guessing that he's referring to what you describe as channeling, your ability to just sit and write whatever comes to your mind. Can you tell us a bit more about that process and when you sort of first consciously realised that that was quite a gift? I wasn't probably conscious of it in school, but I knew that uh, when it came time to do the essay part of the English exam, um, within a couple of minutes it would all be done. Yeah. And there would be this amazing story sitting there and I'd always get 10 out of 10 for it and people would be amazed with it. I wasn't actually conscious of doing much about it. I just knew that I'd hold the pen in place and uh, the paper would shift or the pen would shift and the story would appear and uh, that was that. It was always easy. But uh, I guess when I became conscious of it, a little bit scared of it also, Yeah. Uh, I was... Um, working on the farm, actually I was working on a bulldozer and uh, I was clearing rubbish land and uh, weeds and so on with the stick rake and I'd stop for lunch and I'd take a notebook with me and I'd sit down with my notebook at lunchtime and I'd just start writing and uh, I was 24 or 5 at the time and I started writing a book, one of my books, um, it's um, from another world it's about a parallel dimension. It's about a heroine who does some amazing stuff and it's like in the forest at the turn of, well, probably the 1800s. Yeah. And it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Now, I had no idea what I was writing, but every day I'd sit there for an hour or so at lunchtime, have a sandwich and a cup of tea or coffee, and I'd just let the pen fly across the page and it scared the hell out of me so much that I put it away. 
Yes. So we fast forward a decade and uh, things have changed. I've moved away from the farm. I was in the city then and I was unpacking a box and I found this notebook. So I pulled it out and had a look at it and picked up a pen and it just kept going as though I'd never stopped. And uh, I realised then that there was something happening on another level. So anyway, I wrote that book. Yes. And um, that was in the days before computers were very fast and the typing yeah. was actually faster than the computer. So when I'd stop and look around, the screen would be filling up with words that I'd typed. Not that I was a fast typist, but the computer was slow. Yeah, they were but, very um, slow. Um, the, the book came through and you can't tell now where that 10-year break was. It just okay. was, it was always there. And it's not that I'm writing a story. It's more like I'm describing what's going on in front of me in that situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's like I've got a front row seat and I'm just writing it all down. Yeah. yeah. So and that's pretty... Sorry, Ray, go on. And some of the other things that I write, I'm not conscious at all of what comes through until it actually appears on the screen. I just don't know. So that pretty much answers Harper's question. Um, did you always embrace this gift or did you try and push it away? So for a short period of time, you kind of put it into the background, I'm guessing? Look, I was a kid off the farm. Yeah. I had no idea about this stuff. I, I knew that you planted stuff in the ground and it grew and I knew that when well, there was more things out there than we could see, but I had no idea what the heck this was way beyond my comprehension and yeah. there was nothing in my background to suggest that I should know anything about this having experience of it. I didn't have a, a grandmother who was a um, card reader and there was just none of that. Um, I was, my family background and upbringing was about as straight as they could come. Yeah. So I had no background in it at all and uh, it just came through me. Yeah. Mason wants to know, are all the sentences there to make sense or is there ever any confusion? No, it's all crystal clear. It's quite interesting uh, and it's also a little bit scary. If I write yes. a business letter, um, I have to go through and I spell check it and grammar check it and I change this and change that and I tune it up and I make it work and that's yes. fine. That's the regular way of doing it. When I'm writing a story, um, spell and grammar check is just no need for it. The only difference is that when it gets really late at night, my fingers start creating another language and I know it's time to go to bed. But um, <laughs> generally, when I'm writing these stories, I, there is no correction required. There is no spelling or grammar check or punctuation check. It just comes out perfectly. And that I find is really scary. I don't know how the hell it happens, but... Um, it just flows through and I, I, I find out what's coming when it gets to the page. So you've written a number of books. Do you want to tell us about those? Did you have to get them edited or they were just good to go as they were? Um, I've, I've got three original ones. Yes. Um, I went through them a number of times and... Really, all I did was I, I changed a couple of words to make them more contemporary. I found a couple of typos in there. Yeah. Really, no, there wasn't any editing. Um, they all had different purposes. Uh, the first one 
was um, one I told you about, the, uh, from another world. Yes. And that one it came through over a period of a decade. And yeah. it's probably the first one that I actually put together into a book form. And it's a full-length yeah. novel. And um, it's, well, it, it's set in a forestry setting, like the end of a road in a forest where there's robbers and so on. But it's in the days where technology consisted of a cart and horse and possibly a rifle. Yeah. And that's the limit of technology. Um, there's a romance in it. There's this uh, parallel dimension thing. There's bad guys and good guys and all the characters are there. And it was just something that I had no idea about, but it turned out to be one heck of an adventure and romance story. Yeah. Um, the second one was a collection of short stories, spiritual short stories, and again, yeah. um, from areas that I knew nothing about. There's 35 of them, and uh, when I came to the city and I uh, started working on personal development, I got into coaching, counselling, and business consulting. And uh, I had a lot of consulting and um, counselling clients, uh, people who were having strife with their life, and uh, I was able to talk to them and make things a little better and yeah. I've had this book lessons of life sitting on the table and I'll give it to them and I'll say just hold the book and ask it a question and see what it opens up and they would ask the book a question quietly to themselves they'd hold the book open they'd show me the page and I'd know exactly where they're up to because the book was, was always right it always told them exactly what they needed to know Wow. Uh, I had this book sitting on the table one day and someone else came in, a, a lady I had to talk some business to, and she saw the book sitting there and uh, she asked about it because she saw my name on the cover and uh, I said, oh, I use that for counselling and just talking with people up there. She said, oh, that's a load of rubbish. <laughs> okay, fine. So I just went to the kitchen and I put the kettle on and as I did, I heard her explode into tears. Oh. And... Um, I didn't go out, I just made the coffee and I came out and the book was back where it was and the makeup was replaced. I never mentioned it, she never mentioned it. Um, I don't think I had to. She got a message. <laughs> um, the third book was The Old Man of the Forest. Yeah. Now, I was divorced about them just before I left the farm. It was one of the reasons I left the farm. And uh, my son... Um, he was slightly autistic, high-functioning autistic. Yeah. Um, it manifested as learning difficulties. Yeah. And because I wasn't able to be in his life full-time, I wrote this book. And I wasn't conscious that it was for him, but I realised it was once it was written. Yeah. Um, the Old Man of the Forest is about a boy who's moved from the city out to the edge of town and the forest there and... Uh, he yeah. meets an old man in the forest and the old man guides him into adulthood. And it's basically a coming-of-age book and it's a guidebook for a young guy to, or a teenager, to make the transition from teen to adulthood. And yeah. uh, I gave it to him on his 15th birthday and he was absolutely delighted with it. And I've since given that to a number of young people and their parents have been so grateful for it. Uh, it it's all about that transition period and uh, um, in simple 
easy to understand language. It, it opens yes. their eyes and minds and hearts to the things that they need to know as they're making that transition period. Yeah. It uh, gives them a set of values to work towards because uh, quite often in this day and age, our, our home life and so on is so rushed and busy and so confusing with all of the other responsibilities that parents have that a lot of the values that need to be instilled are basically demonstrated as running around serving the man rather than looking after yeah. the kids and making them the citizens of the future. So uh, that book has been really valuable for a number of different families and it's made a big difference for them. Um, there's been quite a few of those sold. I don't know where they all went to, but I know some of the ones I've kept track of has made a big difference on personally. So, Ray, where um, can people get your books? Uh, those three are on your Amazon. Your existing books. Yes, they're on Amazon. Yep. Um, uh, I guess if you did a search for me on Amazon, uh, Ray Jones, yep. Orphan, you'd find me. I, I don't look myself up that much, but um, I guess that would find me, but I, they are on Amazon. Yep. I've just typed that into the chat box for our box for our listeners. So that's um, Ray Jamison, and it's spelled J A M I E S O N, and all his books are on Amazon. Um, before we get on to your next book, I know that we've talked about your friend uh, Martin Okra. I don't know if I've got the pronunciation right, and your interest uh, in NLP. Martin Okra, yes. Um, if we go way back in my life when I left the farm. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of all sorts of things happening there, a lot of changes in my life. And uh, I moved into the city. Now, I'd always been in business. Uh, right from when I was a little kid, I'd been in business. So when I went to the city, I went into a business consulting and it was going to be finance and so on. But this was at the time of the share market crash. And uh, yeah. in those days, um, businesses, there was, when you walk down any street, one business in 10 had a computer. Yeah, uh, we're going back their way here, uh, and it was a time of huge transition. So when the share market crashed, of course, business just nosedived as well. So because I had a, a very um, different and experiential um, life with business, I was able to go into some of these businesses and turn them around and bring them back out. Yeah, and I realised that the Businesses that survived, the businesses that uh, progressed fastest, were the businesses where the people were not in fear. Imagine when you go into a business where they're going bankrupt, say lunchtime tomorrow, they call you in today, so we've got 24 hours. There's a lot of fear yeah. running there. The businesses that could make the transition were the ones where the emotions were stable and people were in fear. So NLP was a great tool, not that I'm qualified in it, but I yes. got to understand it. And uh, it was a great tool to help those people transition. And the three people who began the NLP movement in a big way was uh, Marvin Oka, Vandler, uh, yes. and Rinda. It was those three. Now, I've followed them for years and I've got a number of their books and just it's fascinating because I've also been studying neuroscience. But yes. Marvin Oka, he works on a different level, whereas NLP is normally something you consider as a one-to-one -one thing, a facilitator and a client. Mm -hmm. Marvin Oka works on the second level, so he'll work with a whole community, a whole organisation, a whole town, and he calls it second level. Yeah. And uh, he'd been following me, apparently. This was uh, 
I was amazed and, and secretly chuffed about this yeah. um, because this guy who was one of my mentors and sort of the God that I, I worshipped from afar, um, he'd been following me and he, he got in touch with me and he said, uh, look, I, I think there's a lot of your work that overlaps with mine. He said, I'd love to talk and learn from you. And, wow, uh, this was amazing. So anyway, we arranged a chat on Zoom and uh, we spent over an hour and uh, it was like we'd been long lost brothers. It was just an amazing conversation. Yeah. And uh, he recognised in the work on my final book, um, Getting Even, that I was doing a similar sort of thing as him. Um, my book was about changing community and national attitudes, even international attitudes, towards homeless and disadvantaged people. I wasn't doing it one-on-one -on -one basis. I was doing it the whole country at once. Yeah. And it very much resonated with what he was doing. So uh, Marvin has since put me in touch with a number of people or put my work in front of a number of people and uh, they're looking at how they can support where that goes to next. Uh, I don't know what will happen with that. But um, as a guy who's been around this industry for the number of years that he has, at least 30, 40 years that I know of, yeah. Um, he has a lot of connections and a lot of influence. So I'm not sure where it'll go, but I'm excited about the fact that it's going. Fantastic. So the new book is called Getting Even, Sometimes yes. Karma Needs a Helping Hand. What's it yes. about? Okay. Um, sometimes bad things happen to good people. They do. And... There is no rhyme or reason to it. Stuff happens. Um, you know, lots of good people, you know, the things that happen to them, that if there was a God to say, how can this happen? Yeah. And there appears to be no explanation for it. And sometimes there appears to be no solution for it. Yeah. Well, I've been the go-to guy for people for about 30 years now, solving problems and getting them out of strife in their businesses and coaching and counselling and so on. So I'm sitting here, I, I, I came to Cairns in February and yes. I'm sitting here in my little apartment after coming home from work on this new job and I have this itch in my keyboard finger and I, I ignored it and I ignored it because I'm new in town and lots of things to do and so on but eventually I sit down at the keyboard and this book started to happen. Uh -huh. Well, it didn't stop. Uh, it's for six months. I'd come home in the evening and I would sit down and it would just pour through me. Uh, yeah. Night times and weekends, sometimes I'd go right through and then I'd see the light around me and realise it was morning. Uh, and I was not conscious of time. In fact, one night I, I made myself a cup of tea at 10.30 and at 3 o'clock I reached for it and it was stone cold. And I was not aware that any time had passed. Uh, and meanwhile, there's pages and pages of this book done. So uh, over that six months period, there was 285,000 words. And the story that's come out of all well, was 20 stories. And the book came out in episodic form. So it wasn't just chapter after chapter. Yeah. It's in a, in a format where a TV producer will be able to take it and turn it into a TV series as well. Yeah. Uh, the, first, the 
the first part of the book establishes the core characters and their stories, and they continue throughout the whole book. But then each succeeding chapter has a victim of circumstances, it has a villain, and it has the linkage between where they join up with the core characters and they bring the situation to a resolution. Wow. Everyone will see themselves or someone they know in here, uh, whether it's a child exploitation thing or whether it's a gang violence thing or home invasion or drugs, um, drugs in school or drugs on the streets, uh, all sorts of things, even farm violence, uh, farm drought and so on. Uh, yeah. A situation there where, um, uh, and I know that this has happened and we've got a Banking Royal Commission here which has validated this long before I, um, I'd written the book long before this came out. But uh, yeah. we've got a, a bank manager in there who's using the drought to his advantage and snapping up farms that he could have yeah. saved and got them cheap. Uh, because of the drought. So we've dealt with all of those sort of issues as well. And uh, the story, the central characters have their story running right through the middle of it. There's corruption and there's uh, city council and political corruption. There's everything in there and everyone will recognise at least someone that they know in there. But when I finished it, like every other book, all I had was this great big file on the computer. I was only yeah. vaguely aware. Yeah, it just appeared on the through. So I went back and read it. Yeah. And I, I started reading it, and I'm sitting there, and suddenly I'm exploding into tears over this one, and then bursting into laughter at that one. And then another time, I'm in shocked silence. I was just amazed at what was coming through. I've had it's just me, I'm just a softie, it's a sucker or whatever. Uh, yeah. I've given it to a couple of people to read, gave it to a publisher. Uh, three days later, I got a call to say, keep going, it's incredible. Um, I've shown it to a few other people and they have all said the same thing. They have that experience too. They burst into tears or they burst out laughing or they just sit there numb with how graphic it is, but also yeah. how real it is because they see themselves or their friends in it. And, and this is the purpose of the book, I think. It's it's not an entertainment book. It's not a book to make you feel good. It's a book to make you do things. It's a book yes. to change attitudes. It's, it's a yes. book about collaboration, about finding a way through these messes. Yeah. And that's, that's the purpose of the book, to make a difference. And when it goes to the TV series, um, it'll be able to go global. Um, it'll be able to make a difference to people all over the world. That's pretty um, exciting stuff, right? It is. And one of the contacts that Marvin Oka has uh, put me towards, I haven't heard back from him yet, um, is a TV producer. But there's another guy in Rotterdam who every second day he's on messages saying, can we make a start yet? Can we make a start yet? It's like the kids sitting in the back seat of a car. Are we there yet? Anyway, uh, he's on the on Messenger every second day. Uh, he apparently has Netflix and someone else who are interested in it. And he Fantastic. wants to get out there. Uh, I still have to get the book published. And, yes. Uh, that's the third step. Uh, I set up a GoFundMe 
page because the publisher wants money to actually do the printing. So I set up a GoFundMe page to get that started. And uh, once that happens, then I've got something to show to these guys and uh, then they can start fighting each other over and I'll be happy about that. Yeah, but, that would uh, be fantastic. The main fantastic. thing is to get it out there. I've got to yeah. get it out there so that uh, I've got something to show these guys and something to negotiate with. Yeah, yeah. I've put up um, Ray's site on the chat box and it's www.gettingeven.com.au. That's gettingeven.com.au. Um, if you want to um, find out more about Ray and his wonderful new book called Getting Even, Sometimes Karma Needs a Helping Hand. So, Ray, what are you looking forward to in 2020? Well, I've been thinking about, I mean, it's like I do look ahead a lot. Yes. But the nature of what I do, it comes very much in the moment. I feel that there's at least two more novels in this series. And right. I, think there's a, I think there's a very different series to follow after. I'm, I just, this is just a feeling. Um Right now, I'm about to start another corporate rescue job. That's what I was supposed to be in Port Douglas for today, but uh, it hasn't yeah. happened yet. The manager has been visiting a business down there, and uh, I've got to go and turn that round, but it's a matter of getting access to the business. Yeah. But um, I'm remaining open to all sorts of things. Uh, yeah. Made plans in the past, and um, for reasons that only became obvious later. Yeah. Uh, they haven't happened, but other things have. And I'm I'm open to that. Uh, yeah. I, I came here on a uh, basically a fairly loose framework, and yeah. uh, I've trusted that I've got enough resources within me to handle whatever comes up. Yeah. And I'm remaining open, so if, if something else came up and I have to go in a different direction, that's fine too. Uh, yeah. I'm fortunate I'm able to do that. Uh, one of the things that has guided me is uh, something that happened when I was quite young, uh, yeah. growing up on the farm. Um, I, as you know, farms wide open spaces, and uh, yes. one of the things you do on the farm is you look at cows. Yeah. Well. Part of milking the cows is putting the calves in the bale the night before, so this afternoon after school at 7 I was walking across this paddock and I was halfway across, there was no one around. Um, it, was, it had been raining a bit, so it was sort of soft underfoot. Um, sounds were muffled, but everything was clear. So I'm two or three hundred metres from the house. There's not another soul within a long distance. Yeah. And then there was a loud voice came from just behind me and it said, those who can must, and I wheeled around thinking someone's playing a trick on me. There's no one there. Yeah. And uh, it was, I don't know what it was, scary, but it was, it was also very profound. And uh, as I pondered on it, over all these years, I've never forgotten that instance, so I can go back to it at any time. Yeah. And it's turned out to be the defining phrase of my life. Yes. I see a situation and it's not a, a question of what should I do here, it's can I contribute? 
those who can must. So it's taken me from the farm. I honestly have a mother there in consultant and corporate rescue, the training counselling, public speaking and so on. All these experiences I've had, it's gone from this position of those who can must. Now, if I can make a contribution somewhere, then yes, I have to. I know that... What a fabulous um, message for everyone today. And um, I hate to cut you off, Ray, but we are out of time and um, I would really like to leave it on that fabulous note of those who can must. Um, And thank you so much for being on Radio Tony today. I really appreciate your time. I know that you're busy. Um, listeners, I've popped up Ray's details in the chat box for you to see, um, including his website. Ray, thank you so much for coming on Radio Tony today, um, and I will chat to you again soon. We're going to take a short break, listeners, and when we come back, we have the amazing Kerry Hort Rowe from Brain Thinking, and we have her for a lovely length of time this today. Um, thanks, Ray, and I'll talk to you again soon. Over to you, Rebel. Keeping the conversation going on the suppressed social and moral issues. This is Radio Tony on W4WN. Join Tony Lontis, author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Radio Tony uncovers and exposes the social and moral issues of our time, bringing social consciousness to the airwaves. You're not alone with your secrets. Let's talk trauma and resilience. Radio Tony with Tony Lontis, Thursday evenings from 7pm Eastern Standard Time on W4WN. Radio Tony on W4WN, your safe space for tough conversations. Hello, Kerry. How are you this morning? Good morning, Tony. I'm really glad to have you on and actually not have any tech problems so that we can have a good old chat today. Yes, yes. It'll be great to have a chat and no tech problems because I'm not a technical person. (laughs) And when things don't go right technically, I never know what to do. Listeners, I was talking to Kerry before the show and before we went live and I've had one of those weeks where I've had hassles with Skype, unable to join Facebook Lives, uh, issues with Zoom, which is another live video uh, connection platform and it's just been one of those difficult tech weeks and so today I'm so glad that I've been able to get my guests on live that I can come to you live and it's all gone fine. It's fantastic. Um, Kerry, you're a wonderful sponsor of uh, Radio Tonia and I've gotten to know you so well in the last few months and I just, I'd really like the listeners today to hear about you and your story because it's pretty um, inspiring and so I'm going to ask you to start and tell a bit of the story about Kerry. Okay, so... um A lot of uh, people know that I sort of fell into my business and I'm not going to go much into when my husband passed away, but 16 years ago this Christmas, he passed away and left me with four children. And then what I went through um, trying to fight, you know, Centrelink and the tax department and, and having no life insurance and having to sell everything and start again. So today I'm, I'm going to concentrate more of the second part of, of my story is once we had moved on and I had rebuilt a house and the children had grown up a bit and I had my first grandchild 
and life was starting to get back to a different normal, but a, a normal for us. Mm. And everything was traveling along beautifully. I'd even met a man. He actually lived in the same street and, and the neighbors used to laugh because on the Friday evening, he would walk up to my place six doors with a pillow under his arm. So he was safe <laughs> for the weekend. So people went, oh, he's going for a sleepover. So, so that was really good. And um, one, one beautiful, normal um, Thursday morning, um, I still had two children living at home and a daughter and, I'm oh, sorry, a son and her, his wife were about to move in the yeah. weekend after. And so it was a lovely, beautiful, crisp morning. I'd head off to, about to head off to work. My daughter left, gave me a kiss and said, I love your mum, left. My son was still home and I headed off to work. So I was a representative for a company at that time or um, and I was heading into the city, which was about uh, 40, 50 minutes away. And on the way, I heard, before I say that, is that we lived on the outskirts of Perth. So it is in the hills area and it's almost country. So people, everyone knows everyone pretty much and all the kids all go to school. So as I was travelling down, I heard on the radio um, an accident, car accident on Bunning Road, closed both ways, please avoid the area. And I just thought, oh, just please don't let it be anyone I know, purely because we all live in the area, we all know, the, you know, everyone is close to everyone and, you know, when you get those communities. So I got to work and I, I was going to be taking out a new representative that day and training them a bit for the job to see if they really wanted to take it on. And so from there, um, I got a phone call. Yeah. Hello, is that, that Kerry Hort? And I said, because I was Kerry Hort then, and I said, yes. They said, it's Sergeant so-and-so. We're just letting you know your daughter Tara has had a car accident. And, of course, I went cold. And they said, next breath, she said, um, it's, she's talking, but they're still trying to get her out of the car yeah. and um, she is conscious, but we, it is serious. And I said, was that on Bunning Road? And she said, yes, it was. Mm. So in the meantime, I, I had met a woman who, had, um, who came across Tara yeah. and she doesn't normally war, um, work on a Thursday or goes to work early that morning. Yeah. So... When I had left, she had left five minutes before me, had gone to the local shop and then headed off. So before I actually had left home, she had had the car accident, which I didn't know then. Um, I met the woman who found her and she came across the, the car and thought, oh, my goodness, another child, you know, someone's had another accident. But it was still a little bit on the road. And because it was a cooler morning, she... Um, had her windows up and she had the radio going. And as she came past the car, she could hear this blood-curdling screaming. And she said it sent her cold and realised that there was still someone in the car and it just happened. So she pulled over and Tara was screaming, just screaming, Mum, 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 I want Mum. And her being a mother of four just sort of held it together and she was an amazing amazing woman who what she did is she put her emotional sides aside and she brought out 
all her training that she had learned years ago in the forces. So she spoke to Tara and she said, Tara, I need you to calm down. And she said, I want you to call mum, call mum. And she said, I can't, I'm not going to call your mum, darling. I'm going to call the officers. So she rang the police and all the, and the fireys. And when they came on uh, there, they, um, they spoke to um, Bev, who found her, and they said, how is she? She said, she's, she's calmer now. She's um, screaming for mum, and I haven't done that. And her lungs are fine because she was being screaming. And they said, how are her legs? Because the way the car is, you can see that she shouldn't have any legs. Mm-hmm. So she said, I haven't looked. So when they got there, you know, they were able to um, take her out. They, she said she's complaining of a sore neck. So from there, I'm going to go back to when I got the phone call from the police officer. And she was absolutely marvellous. She kept me calm and spoke to me for nearly 20 minutes to make sure that I was okay. And she said um, she has a lot of money um, in her bag. And I said, yes, she was taking the day off work to have a photo shoot. So someone had, um, a friend of ours is a makeup artist and was having some um, models to do makeup and and do some promotional work for her. Well, the, the model couldn't turn up, so she rang Tara the day before and she said, Tara, can you please fill in for me? So she said, yeah, no worries. So she went over and did that did that shoot for her, and in the meantime, the a photographer had come in and go, stop, I'm going to make you famous, and took this amazing photo of her. Yeah. So this day of her accident was when she was going to meet that photographer. So my other daughter was going to go and do her hair. She was going to have her makeup done. And this um, photographer was going to, you know, um, get her out there. So, of course, she never made it there. So when the um, officer had spoken to me about the money in there and I told her what it was for, and I said, what happened? And he said, she's hit the tree. And the trees are fairly close to the road and it's a country road just one lane each way, dotted line down the middle and the big trees along the side. And what had happened, she'd just recently broken up with her boyfriend and he had given her a stand that sits on um, the windscreen to hold her photo. So, So what she had done is that it had fallen off and she had leant down to pick it up on the passenger side floor and moved the steering wheel but she overcorrected and bounced around and back and then hit the tree so she hit it one side it bounced around and came back and hit it from the other side so from there um the officer said to me um she's they're going straight to royal perth hospital and royal perth is um way past further than what another hospital is so when they go past um the hospital you know it's really serious so i got off the phone and i rang my nephew and he was the um head of pharmacy at the triage at that time at that particular hospital so i got his voicemail and i just said Adam, I don't know what's wrong, but Tara's coming in and she's been in an accident. Please look after my little girl. So Tara is my youngest of four children. So I made it into the hospital. In the meantime, I had rung my boss and said, 
I'm not working today. Tara's had an accident. I had rung my other daughter and, and she had my grandson in the car and I said, please be very careful. Tara's not going to get there. She's had an accident and had come um, and come to the hospital. Yeah. So I got to the hospital and an ambulance came past. It wasn't her and then her um, ambulance came through and she just looked at me and she just was laying very still as if there was no one in the body. It was just totally cold still. She had no reaction on, on her face. She had the big collar and the thing around her head and collar and everything to keep her body still. So I touched her hand and she had a slight little grin to say, thanks, mum, sort of thing, but she didn't speak. Yeah. So we got to, went into triage and they let me in. So this particular part of triage, they don't let anyone in unless you are actually going to say goodbye. Say goodbye. Yeah. So I went in and I saw her and then they moved me out a little bit. And just as I was coming out, my nephew was walking towards me and I fell into his arms and I have sobbed for the second time in my life. I had, I sobbed. And I went back out to the waiting room because they had to look after her. And then the doctors pulled me back in um, a little while later. And I found out later on that the whole hospital virtually stopped because when they showed me the x-ray, I knew it was serious and I'm not a medical person. But she had um, dislocated C1 in her neck, smashed C2, C3, and dislocated C4. That's now, when you automatically do the top two or three, it is um, automatically um, dead or quadriplegic because it's called a hangman's break. Yes. So they said because of her injury, we have to operate now because normally they would wait for the swelling to go down. If they wait, then the spinal cord would move and so at this particular time she could still move her fingers and toes right. and that's what they had to do so all operations got cancelled she got um, moved in and around very very carefully when they moved her down the corridors everyone had to be out of the way and um being in a triage sorry Kerry just for our listeners those type of breaks that involved your the bones in the top of your neck yes uh, the bones in the top of your neck protect your spinal cord. So Kerry's daughter Tara had broken those bones. And what that means for your spinal cord is a tiny little jump, a, a, a tiny little move, a tiny little bump, and you can impact, sever, permanently harm your spinal cord. Yes. And that will either cause deplegia yeah. or quadriplegia. So, um, Jasper, it was only Tara in the car, wasn't there, Kerry? Yes, that's right. So there was only Tara in the car and there was no one else coming, so there was no other vehicle involved, which we're really happy with. And it was pretty simple. She just leant down to the passenger side to pick up a photo frame and overcorrected, bang, mm. into a tree that was close to the side of the road. That's correct. And, and yeah. to, to Oliver... Um, she didn't lose her legs. Her legs moved in such a way that 
the dash and between her seat was only a matter of a couple of millimetres and they don't understand why. So so we're back down at triage and I'd had a look at this um, this injury of hers and then they took her into surgery, into surgery. So they were prepping her for surgery and I was there the whole time. And I'm a Christian and you had a speaker on last week, um, yes. the doctor, Christian. and she said, yes. whatever you... I believe in grab hold of and that's exactly what the the specialists and the doctors had said to us yeah. so I just and I just it just came across me I just went I just have to pray and they yes. said okay we'll leave you and I said no all of you stay here so <laughs> I remember all I said was Lord look after the people that have chosen to look after what you have created and look after my daughter and that's all I said yeah. because the doctor said to me and took me aside and he held me on my arms and he looked me directly in the eyes and said, if she makes it through the operation, because remember they have to move her spinal cord a, a huge way. So they, she had done a half an S movement with her neck. So they said, if she makes it through the operation, she will be a quadriplegic. So remembering that seven years earlier, I had already lost my husband to leukemia. And I'm thinking, I can't lose a daughter too. So when she went into hospital, in, into the um, surgery, they said it will be very lengthy, a good probably seven hours minimum, go home. And I thought, what do I do? So I'm driving home and I should never have driven home. and But I did because I'm strong and independent. Yeah. And I was crying and I crawled into my walking robe and I sobbed and I sobbed and I thought, I can't go through this again. And then my um, boyfriend at the time, he came and I had a shower and refreshed. In the meantime, my phone had gone stupid because when Tara's car was picked up, it were, had was taken past a local um, business area and the car that she was driving that particular day, she had been given to her brother. So he had been using it, and she had been driving her Skyline. So for that particular day, they switched cars. So a good friend of Michael's mum was um, working in this business, looks out on the road and saw the car that Michael had been driving on the back of this truck smashed to pieces. So she jumps on the phone to to Jared and saying, check out with Michael, he's had an accident. So the community, as I was saying before, because we all live in a little uh, small community area, it went round like wildfire that Michael had, had a car accident. Yeah. Then I hadn't had the chance to ring the other children and they'd run and I said, yes, Tara's had a car accident, come on down. So... In that meantime, I had now turned my phone off because it was buzzing too much. Yes. One of the phone calls was a girlfriend of mine who was about to get on the plane to, uh, with her daughter to get married in Bali. Yes. Twelve months to that very day, she said to me, she said, can you come and do my hair in Bali? And, I, and I've always done her hair because she has a, a few particular problems that I won't go in with that that she only had me as her hairdresser so um for that particular time I just said 
I don't know why, but I can't go. I can't go. Yeah. I don't know why. And they said, oh, you've got to come. And I went, I don't know why. But in my head, something was telling me you can't go to Bali. Yeah. So Tara, I'm in the hospital with Tara about to go in to have her operation while they were getting on the plane to go to Bali. So that's where I would have been that time. So, so in with that, she went in, she had the operation. We were now um, um, at the high dependency area. And that section is um, for those that need two or three people looking after them at all time and no one leaves their side. So we were sitting there and waiting and waiting. So then the surgeon gave me a phone call. We're now at 1 a.m. in the morning. And he said, where are you? And I told him where we are. He came down and said, she's alive. And I went, great, my baby girl's alive. So he said, I'm going home to have a shower. When she wakes up and comes out, um, they will let you me know if she can move. Yeah. So they, um, he called me and said, I don't know why. He said, but this is an absolute miracle because she can move her arms, legs, move everything and the only things that you can see physically is a few little um marks on her knuckles a seat belt mark on her um chest and a little mark on her knee and that's all you can see physically and she had broken c1 c2 c3 c4 now from that surgery the surgeons are now traveling the world teaching that particular construct because they had to work really quickly to work out how they were going to operate on someone who had done a hangman's break but was still able-bodied and that just hasn't happened before so from that they now travel to germany czechoslovakia england america and obviously australia teaching that particular construct because it is so um, strong and was able to fix it. Yeah. So going forward, she went to Shenton Park, was a rehabilitation centre, and it took her about five years to really get over that accident. She had another operation um, two years later to take out one of the um, a rod that sat at the her occipital bone at the back of her neck. So when at the back of her skull. So when you hold your hand at the top of your head and then you roll it backwards then you have that little bump before it gets to your neck that's your occipital bone yeah so what she they had they had a plate sitting on that and then going down to c1 yeah. so she has a screw in c1 they took pieces of her bone out of her hip to um, replace c2 and c3 and screws in c four and they are fused together with rods down the middle so that is her new neck they took that first part out that goes to c1 and then now she was able to um, bend her neck forward and back ah. so so when she had that she we, we went through all the rehabilitation and she was fine she had to learn to walk again you know holding this frame up and then the day they the screws had to come out because the halo that they have on it's a halo that goes around your head and then there's four screws that go into your skull and that is held by frames that goes to a frame that sits over your shoulders and over your torso to keep your like, neck and everything together. 
a bit like walking around with a Meccano set on Yeah, your that's exactly um, right. With their screws and um, yeah. and pieces of, pieces of metal, but they must keep, uh, they had to keep Tara's neck completely Super stable cool. to protect the work that the surgeons had done and help her body to uh, recover and heal. So that's got to be kept still. So... Imagine sleeping in something like that. Well, that was the other thing, is that um, when we had to bring her home, I'm thinking, how am I going to travel an hour from the Shenton Park to bring her home and not have anyone touch? So while I'm driving, I'm trying to miss every single pothole and every single move and anyone's coming close and I'm yelling, move away, move away. So I'm doing that mother hen chewing everyone away to make sure that I can get my daughter home safely. Yeah. So we did that. And every Friday we had to actually go to um, back to the um, rehabilitation centre to tighten the screws. And because they were foreign body, foreign things in the body, the body naturally wants to push it out. So they have to retighten them. So we learned very quickly that for her to take a Panadol and Nurofen before we headed down there. So, so jumping forward, we went all through this. Everything was good. Um, a couple of months later, we had that all taken out where they had to take that out and she had to learn to walk again without the frame. In the meantime, she had lost 10 kilo within that first couple of days. And when she, we eventually had to go to shopping centres for her to actually do that part of her recovery, and people looked at her like, oh, my goodness, she needs fattening up or, you know, um, things like that and thinking, hang on a minute, if only you knew what she'd been through. So we, her 21st was coming up and it was going to be my 50th and her 21st on the same year. And we were going to have a big bash together. But because she couldn't do that, she didn't want a 21st. So I said, well, I'm not having a 50th. But I thought, no, you have to have something. And because, because of the way her neck was, she couldn't eat. So she could only swallow. So she couldn't chew anything big. So everything that I made, I pureed for her. So I'd make shepherd's pie and I'd puree it. I'd make soup and I'd puree it. And whatever I made, I had to puree it for her. So I went, okay, we are going to have a 21st. We're just going to have just a couple of friends and just the family. And everyone's going to step into your world for this short amount of time so i made what i made normally and i pureed everything so everyone had to eat everything was pureed and they loved it they went oh it looks terrible you know what it looks like and i went i know what it looks like but they said it tasted wonderful so they there was no normal lollies there was only normal chocolate that you could you know, um, melt in your mouth and swallow. They had to drink everything out of a straw because her neck, when you drink, you put your neck back. So she can't do that. So no one was out of put. So we made up a couple of little um, um, collars to put around people and everyone said that was (laughs) the best thing. It was wonderful. So, um, So we did that. Then it was just on Christmas and I went, because I had been working from home. The company I was with was absolutely fantastic. Let me work from home. So I had my 20-year-old daughter at home with a broken neck. I had now started slowly going back to work and people were coming in and looking after Tara. So I said, I need to go and do this work. So I was going to organise the Christmas party. So I went and organised that and it was and I took Tara 
to my daughter's house. She was going to take her to the Halo Clinic to have the screws tightened for the virtually the last time. And um, my son was at work and I knew, and my eldest son was working away, so I knew that my family was fine because I'm now been doing cotton wool. And so I thought I'll go and have the Christmas party. But a couple of months or a year before, we had a massive um, storm that had come through, a hailstorm that had wiped out a lot of area. And there was a storm coming and they said, it's going to be like this. So I went, don't go to the Halo Clinic, stay where you are, because I don't want them in the in the um, storm. I rang Halo Clinic and said, sorry, she's not coming. I knew my other son was at work. Everything was fine. So I went, so we'd had the Christmas party, went and picked up my daughter, just about to go home, and I got a phone call from um, this good mate's girlfriend that had seen Tara's car and said, um, Kerry, where are you? And I went, oh, I'm just about to arrive home with Tara. He goes, okay, we're bringing Michael over. Now, Michael was the brother just above Tara. He was my third child. Yeah. And I said, why? He said, because it was going to rain, they decided not to take the day off and they went motorbike riding. So he came off the bike doing 90-odd Ks, went over the handlebars and he'd broken both wrists. So here I am now having to leave my daughter with this girl at home, take my son down to the hospital where he had both wrists were put into casts. Luckily, they were just a normal little break. So I'm now bathing and looking after a 20-year-old with a broken neck and bathing and looking after a son with two broken wrists, a 22-year-old. So I, so he looked like, you know, um, Magic Mike, you know, with the rippled yes. things. So yes. he put on Facebook, bath number one, tick. Bath <laughs> number two, tick. Clean the house, tick. Clean Tara's things, tick. And people coming, we'll wash them, we'll wash Michael. So it was all these little things that we had to start laughing and looking at. But then in the meantime, we had learnt to laugh because we had already been through so many tragedies. Yeah. But there's one thing I want to also point out just before uh, we finish this particular subject is Tara kept telling the woman who found her that um, who was holding my neck, who was holding my neck. And when I met with her and I said, Tara kept saying someone was holding her neck. She said, no one touched her. I didn't touch her. No one touched her until the paramedics got there. And Tara said, mum, the hands were really strong, firm and really warm and holding my neck as if they were holding the two thumbs at the back of her neck and then holding the hands around her neck, holding her neck together. And I said, Tara, no one touched your neck. And he said, someone did. And I said, well, that was your guardian angel. And so to this day, we believe it was her guardian angel that held her neck together that day because it was a total miracle. When you look at 12 months prior when I should have been getting on the plane to when she had the accident to when my son, you know, had breaking his wrist to Tara having that and this woman not going to work normally on that particular day and that early in the morning, there was a whole lot of sequence where someone in a higher power had put in place. Yeah. Um, and and I thank, you know, I thank God every day for my wonderful family and my children and now my, you know, four awesome grandkids. Yeah. Um, sorry, my four awesome, um, their partners, who I call eight, eight kids I have now, and my eight grandkids 
that's all happened, you know, um, in that short amount of time. So, so I'm very blessed. And Tara is doing very well. Yes, she, right. <laughs> um, yeah, she's fantastic, doing well. She's, um, we had a thank you to all the services um, seven years after and on the day of her accident. And um, they ended up saying, no, thank you to you because we never hear. And they always remembered the, her in the accident, but they never heard what happened to her. Those that at Shenton Park never knew how she got on later. And so we bought the, um, the specialist, the surgeon, those that looked after her, the police, the ambulance, the fireys, all got them together. And the surgeon made a little... Um, model of her skull and neck and what he'd put together and put it on a plaque and said congratulations Tara and all the best for the future and it was just wonderful and we keep in contact with these amazing people that help build and look after the human race. Yeah I must say um, in my nursing career the worst accident that I remember looking after I can still very clearly see the x-ray shot of her broken and fractured. Uh, she was a lumbar thoracic uh, fracture and her back was like a um, up across up break and I, I can still see that that would be uh, easy 30 years ago that yeah. but I can still see it. So from a carer's medical perspective you never forget those big bad uh accidents yeah. that you see and uh the outcomes are not always as good as tara so she has any residual effects for her like headaches or difficulty walking or anything no, no she's been very very lucky every now and then she will get a slight ache in her yeah. neck when it's a bit cooler yeah. um um, but no, she's she can move her neck um, 25% one way and about 35% the other way. So when she turns her head, she turns her body yeah. and her head a little bit. So she can move forward and back now and she just moves her body a bit. So some people every now and then will say, oh, you've got a bit of a stiff neck. And she'll just go, oh, yeah, I've just got a few screws there today. So you know, <laughs> she'll just muck around. But when you're saying about you remember a spot, there was um, when she's gone to have checkups everywhere, people go, oh, I remember yours. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it. And, you know, other hospitals where her yeah. x-ray went around everywhere. Yeah. So when we get off the show, I oh, will email you her um, her x-rays because when I do the presentation, I talk about uh, phones and picking up and what it can do, just something simple. Because in the Halo Clinic, we met a whole lot of people. And We've done the same thing. Yeah, and so I do a full presentation of show her her neck before and after operation. Also during the operation, they yeah. were good enough to take photos for me and give them to me of her car and all that. And yeah. so yeah, so I do that for corporate companies. Fantastic! I uh, just the things that come from the worst experiences in your life often end up being the most fulfilling things on on many levels um zara wants to know i guess she's pretty famous and uh, not even knowing it huh uh, yeah she's she famous. does i i always would say, be famous I, yeah i always say i don't mind you know telling she said no i'm fine mum so she doesn't go to anything but her photos out there and and yeah. they see it and so her neck is famous so when they see the the neck they go oh 
oh, you're Tara. <laughs> yeah, her X-rays would be fame would be yes. famous in medical circles because once surgeons do some of that life-saving and innovative surgery, then it becomes important to spread it around the world. So as a result of um, Tara's accident, the world now knows how to deal with these types of fractures in a better way. So yes. if Tara hadn't had that accident, they wouldn't have that knowledge, they wouldn't have the opportunity to be innovative and what a great thing to come out of such a tragic thing, oh, isn't totally. it? Totally. Yeah. So that's Tara's story and I now know, like, Kerry does so many other wonderful things and I think the next thing I want to talk about is your work with young women. Yes. So do you want to tell our listeners about the beautiful program that you do with young women? Yes. So um, my background is actually hairdressing and so I've um, coming up 40 years in the hairdressing industry and I, before I did that, I did a small um, business um, management course and accounting because I always wanted to be the boss or um, have my own business and know what's happening out there. So I did all that first and then I did hairdressing and every part of my hairdressing industry I won. I went into competitions and won state, national and I say I won world championship but I actually wasn't me there. I couldn't go um, to the world championship but someone had taken my hairdo, watched oh. it and won the world championship. So when it came out they went, oh, that's plagiarism. They just totally <laughs> copied my so they were watching me at the nationals and took it to the world championships. So that's why I say I won the world championships. And so, rightly so. Uh, yes. So I've I've done a lot of courses over the years of training and, you know, train the trainer and, and teaching. I also did a couple of years in trichology, which is learning hair, scalp and skin, but I never finished it. And that's a quite a, a science side of hairdressing. And most hairdressers don't know what I teach the young ones. Yeah. So my having two daughters and two sons, I've always wanted to raise my two daughters to be strong, independent women and raise my sons to not be afraid of strong, independent women. And one thing I have found with raising daughters is that then when they come into usually around 13, 14, all of a sudden fashion is a big thing and they want to look like what's in the magazines of women that are five to seven years older than them. And they want to put on more of the makeup. They want to wear the skimpier clothes. They want to have the midriffs. They want to do all this. And I'm going, no, you're not wearing that. And they said, but they're wearing it. I said, yes, but they're in a magazine. They're getting paid for it. And they probably wouldn't normally wear this outside of the magazine shoot. So fighting fashion with young children became something that I was really, became really passionate with. So with my... Um, knowledge of the trichology, getting to understand some of the medication that doesn't work well with the hair um, when you have colours in and with working with women because women or the young girls, I say young women, want to look older than what they are. So I've been going into some private schools and talking to usually the age of 14 to 17 or 18 and talking to them about hair makeup 
how to enhance you but not actually change you. Let them realize that that unless you were tall and slim or you were short and round or you were, you know, large or whatever it is, that is your genetics. Yeah. And you're never going to change that. So enhance what you have. Don't try and change what you can't. Right. And so by doing this, I, I teach them about the hair and, and how to just style in a slight way. So a lot of them might want to put their hair, you know, apart down the middle and move it. Mm-hmm. A part down the middle will always enhance your nose, whether it is large or small. So just by moving it a centimetre or two slightly to the side, you actually alleviate that and it'll bring out your cheekbones. Uh-huh. So, so little things like this is what I'm teaching and showing the young ones how to be able to look after their hair. The reason why we have to shampoo our hair twice and not just once. Um, when we go through... Yeah. So the reason why we shampoo our hair twice is the first one gets rid of all the dirt and everything that, um, you know, the hairspray and everything else that goes in from the environment and dirt. The second one actually cleans the hair. So we only actually need a little tiny drop. And the first bit of shampoo that you use should not technically lather up much at all. It's society says that it has to lather. So um, the cheaper the shampoo, the more the hair shampoo will lather up because there's more detergent in it. So so we want to shampoo twice. The second one should next to use next to nothing again because you just need to clean it. And then with using the conditioner, the conditioner is to close the cuticle. So when you wash your face and tone your face and everything, it's the same with the hair. So your shampoo opens the cuticle of your hair and the conditioner closes it. And so that what makes it nicer. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to, oh, sorry, excuse me. I don't want to use the conditioner because it, you know, it won't sit up well. And I said, yes, but you're going to make it, you're going to damage it more. It's going to split more. It's going to, um, you know, cause a lot more problems. But also for fine hair, not putting it at the scalp, we need to just put it on the ends. But not put too much. A lot of people put too much on there and you're just wasting your money. You just need enough for about a five cent piece, rub it in your hands and just lightly comb it through your hair, not flatten it on the top of your head and then just take it through. And that's what causes often flatness in hair. So the ends are the most important where conditioning for your hair is concerned. Yeah. So so I show the girls these. And then when it comes to when their hormones start really kicking in and the pimples all start coming through, is they want to cover their face. I say, no, take the hair back because you're putting oil on top of oil. There is when a lot of the young girls go and have the foils and everything done and there is a medication called Roaccutane, which a lot use, which is for clearing up um, your skin from acne. And a lot of them will try and jump on it. And unfortunately, a lot of the doctors are prescribing it way too much. And when you have a, um, you go to the hairdresser and you have a few foils put in, when you, you put that bleach with it, it will start melting and disintegrating that hair within seconds if you're having mm. Roaccutane. Yeah. It mixes what it does, the chemi- the strong chemicals in that, and mixing with the medications is terrible. So one of the, um, one young girl that came through 
um, that medication is called Roaccutane, um, and, and it's to do dose. with the acne. Yeah, so it's to do with the acne. So one particular girl came in one day and um, we had just started to do some foils through. She would have been about 16. And the the first foil started to get really hot. And I said, are you taking anything? And she said, oh, no. And I said, are you sure? Because this tells me that you're taking something. Are you taking a medication for your acne? She said, yeah, I am. By the time we got to... The third foil, the first one was steaming, so we had to go straight to the basin and take it off. And her hair in that particular one was already cotton wool. Now, and cotton wool are just pulling apart. So she burst into tears and she said, well, no one told me that. And I said, no, the doctors don't know that. And they don't teach it. They'll just have a little warning is that it may cause a few problems in the hair. That's all they say. And so unless you go into doing the trichology side of it, most hairdressers don't know this. So when they're actually doing foils and a hairdresser does it and they start getting warm and you're pulling it out, pulling the foils out and the hair comes with it. So it makes it really hard that I wish that they would teach this to hairdressers. Yeah. But they don't because it's like a dentist and an orthodontist. There's yeah. there's now separate things. So I'd like to take the all of this to the young girls. The other one is also the pill. Um, some young girls, I don't talk about sexual things in the pill because that's not my area. But I do say if you go on the pill for to regulate your periods or anything like that, certain ones will also react with your hair. And... Um, and this is where it, it makes it really interesting with certain type of medications, certain type of pills. Um, the other thing is um, from Marie, I learned this a bit through trichology, which is hair, scalp and skin. Um, and your doctor or your GP um, that you go to regularly, they should tell you these things when you're prescribed that medication. Um, otherwise, if you're being prescribed those uh, any medication, you should yeah. ask about interactions. Yes. This is what we term as an interaction with yeah. the medication. And That's right. Sometimes they forget. But sometimes also the doctors may not know the hairdressing side of it, though, of what it would do with the, when the bleach and the chemicals are, are mixed together. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, is that what a lot of people don't realise is that your hair is is the most beautiful DNA from the scalp to the ends of your hair. And it will let you know everything that you've had done or what is in your body or what your body is lacking from the length of hair, whether it is, a, you know, a couple of inches to, you know, um, 12, 14 inches. And when you see footballers and they've got a nice head of hair and then all of a sudden they've shaved it off to nothing you know they're trying to hide it because what they do is when they're doing their drug tests they if they it only stays for 24 hours in in the blood but it will stay for a lifetime in the hair of that particular hair in the shaft so there was one girl that came in and her hair started to smoke um and it was probably about Oh, seven, eight inches from the scalp. That part was fine, but it was the end of the hair that was fine, that was smoking. We had to take that off. And, and she couldn't tell me anything that had done. I said, have you had any operations or anything done? She goes, no, no, no. So mum came in and I said, look, I'm sorry, but we can't do her hair. So 
something about from around about six to seven months ago that she's had because this part of her hair is not is reacting to what we're using and she said you silly duffer you totally forgot that she had had a um a major operation to fix part of her one of her kidneys and so she had been taking these strong medications to look after that part of the operation and then it was that that stayed in the anesthetic and those pills that were staying in the hair shaft yeah so so that's the difference with the dna and that's why often doctors will send you off to get a hair sample and it needs to be that is virgin hair and they will take that part dissect it and go through and work out what you're lacking or what's not working for you yeah so it's yeah. fascinating it is fascinating so, things so work. in the makeup so i've got a course coming up uh it's a day course um it's from you know 9 32 2 and that's for young girls from 14 to 18 of where i go through and show a whole lot of things about body image i put up a whole lot of makeup things and seeing of what not to do and then i put up what how to do and then when they have a look at it, they go oh yeah and when they can see the difference and then i start putting them up and i say is it a hit or a miss and they'll all start yelling out hit miss hit miss because then they can't see it. i said so if you've got someone looking at you do you want to have them to say is it are you a hit or a miss and yeah. so some of the young girls that I have spoken to over the years are now actually getting married and having kids. And they oh. said, that is the best information we have ever had. And so they're now teaching their daughters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Violet's got a question. How do you get rid of the things in your hair shafts? You can't, can you? Like it's there until the hair completely grows out? Yes, that's right. Yeah. You have to wait till it grows out or you cut it out. Um, everything that happens in your body is a, your hair, your hair is like a roadmap of what happens in your life. Um, so if you know you've had a, like, it's like when you have a, uh, you know, an operation and you have a colour or your hair will go slightly drier because it takes all the goodness out and our hair and skin and nails are made up of keratin and um and a whole lot of other things and so when our body itself is fighting something or lacking something it will take it from your hair your skin and your nails yeah. and that's why often when doctors will have a look at your nails or they have a look at your skin and then they'll have a look at your hair and then go from there and then that's when they can work things out as to um, what works and what not so this is what i'm taking to young girls about makeup how to put on makeup properly so that you can look really good but not look overdone you know how to look natural how to enhance so um if those of you who have seen my photo i always yes. wear my hair behind my ears i would love to wear it in front and around but as soon as i put it in front of my um face or in front of my ears it gives me a very square look and drops my cheekbones so when i do this analogy and show the girls they all go oh wow and then i put it behind my ears it gives me a little bit more of a chiseled jaw and yeah. then it lifts my cheekbones up so it's just simple little things that what i do is i go through with the girls i don't have any more than 25 because it's a nice group and then we'll go through and have a look and talk and chat and they can ask me everything that 
that they want to know that you don't get from hairdressers, makeup artists, all that mums don't know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so anyone can get you to do these little workshops across uh, anywhere. Absolutely. They just need to contact you on your um, on your website to ask about um, your workshops, don't they, Kerry? Like, yes, that's right. I can travel anywhere or do anything and yes. uh, that's that's not a problem. Um, I'd be happy to travel anywhere if they get a you know group of girls or schools over a couple of days. Um, yes. And we can do all that. Um, Marie, to answer your question, um, sometimes, yes, nails will grow. There is a couple of different um, components that go into nails that aren't in hair, but they all have a common um, thing, which is the keratin. Sometimes when it's your hair, because of the follicle may be damaged or um, something may have happened around that will damage the follicle that actually grows there, sometimes it can also be... Um, genetics, if your hair will only grow to a certain length. Um, the other thing is looking at what shampoo and conditioner you eat. You uh, you eat. Shampoo and conditioner you use. Please don't eat the shampoo and conditioner. Um, um, and, but the other thing is also what we are, what we eat. And so there are certain types of um, food and everything that is best for you and your hair. Um, I've helped a number of people to help grow their hair. You can only grow your hair if you have a follicle. If you've got a follicle, then it will grow. And there That's is a the couple base, of... The base part of your hair. Yes, it's, it, it's the part you can't see. It's the root. It's the root of the hair. In so your scalp. Got, yeah, in your scalp. So when you pull your hair out, you've got a root on the end of it. So the follicle is what sits... Uh, over and around in the root so it's like the the pot mm. uh, so if you think yeah. Of, yeah a drink if you think of a cup and you put a yeah. straw in the straw would represent their hair on and its hair shaft and the cup would be the follicle yeah exactly yes yeah yeah so th there are a number of things around that um that you can use there is a lot of things out there that are absolute crap and no one should use but unfortunately they do a great marketing job <laughs> So, but there are. But if you go to your hair, local hairdresser, there are a couple of really good ones that are that are really good that will help. They are expensive because they have all the quality products that you need, and it's usually a shampoo, conditioner, and a serum. And a serum is a, like a little um, eyedropper. You pick up a little bit of it and you put it in your hair, massage it in, and you have to do that every day. So that will stimulate the the follicle and get them going. So I've had some great success. So even though our brain thinking is my business and the reason brain thinking because our brain never stops just thinking. I ask Kerry, can I keep you on? If we go to a break now, can I keep you on for a little bit longer? Absolutely, yes. All right. Well, we might, listeners, we might um, go to a quick break because there's a little song that I want you to listen to from uh, Randy Muller. Um, it's a great sound, and I promised him I'd play it this week. But I want to come back with Kerry after the little break, and we will talk some more about hair and nails and what you can do. Is that okay, Kerry? Yes. Yes. All right. Over to you, Rebel, and we'll see you all again after a short break.
Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl, discovering a woman of strength and beauty, is the new book from Australian author Tony Lontis. Available in paper, ebook, and audio formats, Resilience is the true life story of Tony experiencing and surviving trauma, abuse, mental health issues, and the ultimate betrayal of someone she fell in love with. Available for download now through all good online retailers and in all good bookstores. Tough conversations on the social and moral issues of our time with Tony Lontis. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia, Radio Tony on W4WN. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Tony, and I've got Kerry on the line again. And before the break, we were having a wonderful conversation about nails and hair. And so, Kerry, I was wondering after, uh, before the break, are there foods that will help your hair grow? I know there's foods that will help your hair stay healthy, but what about foods that will help your hair grow? Look, I've not really gone too much into um, the food side of, of things, yep. but at the end of the day, it's it's like the all everything that in balance. It's yes. healthy food, exercise, regular water. All of those work, but it's different for each person. So some people, it might be high protein. Some people, it might be high dairy. Some people, it might be fruit and veggies. Some might be nuts and everything. And it's different for each person. My daughter, One of my daughters has just been having a lot of problems and we've been working out all sorts of things. And she's doing a, a gone back to uni with two kids and all that and she's doing dietitian nutrition. And she went, I know what my problem is. And so we've, she's worked it out now for her why yeah. her hair is always, and I've tried everything, and sometimes it's not as simple as just doing bits and pieces. She's now gone through, and because of what she's learned in the dietitian nutrition and the chemical side of things of breaking down each little molecule of each food, she's realized that she needs to get off a certain type of protein within the dairy. And so once she's done that, her hair is looking great it's so much better just by changing one particular protein that is found in one particular food so it's a real science so it's it's something that i can't say what will work for you or that because that part i don't know um but i know she is learning it so sometimes going to the dietitians and all that can be absolutely fantastic because they have done all these and what works for one isn't going to work for another um it's like the same with exercising what works one doesn't work for another and diets and all of that um just going back to a little bit what i want to say a little bit about the girls courses that i do One thing I do is that I bring up a statistics that was done um, in 2016 of um, over 100 um, guys between 15 and I think they were 20 and of what they look for in a girl. And this is something the girls are really interested in. What do the guys want to see? And number one, what they first notice is someone's smile, then their eyes, then it's their personality and laughter and things like that. Their weight, their looks, their height all came down around between 10, 11, and 12. And when the girls see that, they go, oh. And I go, yeah. And I said, the one thing that you all need to learn and what us as women learnt, you know, way too late, is that women dress for women. Yes. 
men don't care. They, they don't notice. You could be in rags and they wouldn't care less as long as that you are the person you are on the inside. Yeah. And that's what shines. And you can see that when you see so many couples that automatically, unfortunately, as people, we tend to judge and go, oh, they're an odd-looking couple. But when you <laughs> meet them, you go, oh, my goodness, that's why you two are together. Yeah. So it's it's the, getting this into the girls is really important. And get, stand, up, stand up straight and be proud of who you are. Because that's that something that... They, if they have that information and gain that confidence in their teenage years, that will carry them throughout their life and prevent lots of sadness. That's right, exactly. And, of course, then they'll pass it on to their children and yes. then we hopefully we'll have less of this, you know, bad self-esteem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, but going back to hair and nails, a lot is, it. a lot of it is, 50% of it can be genetics. Mm-hmm. Um purely like your teeth, like I've got chalky teeth, I've got terrible teeth, I've got my mother's teeth. Um, And thank goodness none of my children have got it. But certain things can be genetics. Um, The other thing I was going to say, Kerry, you know how we talked before about medication? Medication can have a really strong effect on your hair and the things like the thickness of your hair, how fast it grows, how fast it regrows. All of those things can be affected by the medications that you take, both uh, ones by that the doctor gives you, and sometimes even over-the-counter things can cause an impact on your hair. So that's an important thing to think about yeah. as well, isn't it, Kerry? Yes, it is. There is actually one particular um, medication that I I've known a couple of women who have taken. And um, and it's called I think it's called Special K, but you can only get it through through a doctor's script, and you can only use it for a certain amount of time, and that will help generate the follicles if you've got the follicle. But um, but a vitamin as far as hair, scalp, and um, nails, they're really good to take, um, you know, because it has gives you the extra. Because if you're you know we're we're so busy these days that we're not eating properly and we're not doing everything that we should be doing so by having the extra vitamins and everything in you know it doesn't hurt so um, yeah so you know the one for hair scalp and nails is really good yes yeah and lots of water yeah 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 um so I love that part of what you do in life, your work with young girls. But before we run out of time, I really want to get back to your work as a business consultant and your brain thinking brand because that's the thing that's generated so much conversation for us over the last little while. So I thought we'd just finish off the show having a few, having a talk about um, how you help businesses um, in your role as a business consultant. Okay. So the reason why we called it brain thinking is that because our brain never stops thinking. And whether it is we have to stimulate our brain, we have to keep going. If you don't, it's one of those things, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And um, and I, in a business coach, I'm the HBDI practitioner. And I use that a lot by when you are running a business or you're running a family or whatever it is you have to do, you've got to make sure that you're looking after every part of that business. Now, if you are... Uh, 
running a business and you've got staff and everything too and you've joined started that business and you're so excited about getting the business up and running and then you start having staff and then you start having to look into other things and making sure the staff are right and and the the wages are being coming in the money's coming in and then you've got to start looking at every every day activities that sometimes you tend to lose a little the passion why you went into business and then you can tend to become a little bit complacent of doing all the mundane things that you forget about the number reason why you went into business and that's when customer service often is lacked so when you first go in the business is brilliant the customer service is fantastic but when they get busy, they'll go, oh, yeah, we'll just make the coffee. We'll do this and do that. And before long, the business is losing money. Mm. I want it so that people will come and see me before they get to the stage of where they're ready to close the doors. Yeah. Because I'm a fresh set of eyes. I specialize in customer service. I specialize in you helping yourself by helping your staff, which will in turn look after your clients and the clients will look after your business. Yeah. With thinking. Yeah. Sorry, darling. Um, I was just going to say, what do you mean when you talk about customer service, just in case some of our listeners don't understand what that, that terminology means? Okay. Customer service, I find there are so many components of customer service. And everyone says, oh, yeah, we look after the customers. And go, how do you look after the customers? And then when they try and drill it down, they realize that they're lacking in so many things. So when you can imagine you've walked into a business and the person is at the reception, they look at you and then they go back to doing what they're doing. They're talking on the phone, but they've looked at you, but they haven't acknowledged you. So you sit there and go, "Mm, okay, well, do I really need to be here? They're still doing what they needed to do, but they still haven't acknowledged you. So you'll think, okay, I might go next door. There's another lighting place down the door. There's something there. So you'll walk out the door and go. It doesn't hurt to say just a few seconds of if you're on the phone and you're at the computer and you're doing something, all you have to do is look at the person and mime, smile to them, raise your finger and say, I'll be with you in one minute. That's all it takes. When you go into a retailer, a retail business, and there and how and all your listeners will be able to tell me how many times this has happened to them, where you've got a couple of girls are talking down the back, they'll see you walk in, they won't do anything, they'll quickly finish off their conversation, and then they'll come and see you. A lot of people think that oh, you've got to give the customer time to come in. It's usually around about five minutes. No, it's not. It's a really short, pretty much 15 seconds. And Mm -hmm. in that 15 seconds, you can say the alphabet 25 times almost. You can do all these little things. So a customer will walk in if you look at them or even if you're with another customer, you just say your customer, sorry, excuse me for two seconds, and you look at the lady, I'm sorry, I'll be with you in just a few moments. And then that way they're fine. If you've acknowledged them, They'll stay there for five minutes and have a look around. If you don't acknowledge them, they will walk out and go next door. And you don't know whether that woman was going to come in or that person was going to come and spend a couple of hundred dollars or a couple of thousand dollars with your business. Like Julia Roberts from Pretty Woman. Exactly. Same thing. The, and don't judge. The other thing yes. is is that with, with customer service is giving the full service. So say, for instance, you know, I did this analogy with a um, lawn mowing uh, shop. You walk in, this guy wants to buy a lawn mower. 
And so I said to the staff, so I did this analogy, had this person come in and I said, okay, first of all, you start straight up front, how much are you wanting to spend? And they'll go, you can't ask them that. I said, yes, you do, because then you know where to put them. So you go, how much are you wanting to spend? So when they they say $2,000, okay, that's fine. So when we go to here, why don't you talk about is that ask them all the questions. So customer service is all about the consultation. Mm-hmm. What sort of lawn do you want? Are you um, wanting lawn that it's sort of nice and lovely and, and it looks like it's it's in the wealthy suburbs or are you just mowing clover? Are you wanting to edge it? Are you wanting to do this? And by that, you will be able to drill down to work out exactly what they want. And then you do the add-ons and then you say, look, have you got the safety gear? Have you got this? And they may say, look, I've got those at home. I don't really need it. That's fine. So they'll go away. They'll talk to their neighbour and say, oh, you've got a new lawnmower. Yeah, I have. Oh, well, when I bought mine, I've got this, 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 and this, and this. And they say, yeah, my guy did that too, but I didn't get it. But if you didn't offer that and then they go back and the, the neighbour says all this, where do you think they're going to go next time? Because they got the full service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jimmy wants to know what are they buying for that amount of money? Jimmy, if you're in Australia, $2,000 is about um, – U.S. is about uh, $1,400 is about $2,000 Australian and you'll get a pretty good ride-on mower for that. So <laughs> Kerry's explaining a, uh, the analogy of working with um, a mow, mower business mm-hmm. and how they could improve their customer service. So when and when it comes to customer service, whether it's retail or whether it is um, accountants or seeing um, any sort of business, everyone is in sales and everyone is in customer service. So when you have a meeting and you go in, you want to be able to have someone greet you at the front and say, hi, thank you very much for coming today. Can I get you a glass of water, a cup of tea? Um, you know, uh, Joan is only going to be about five minutes away, you know, yeah. and to but that often doesn't happen. You sit there for a bit and wonder, where is everyone? So the whole thing of customer service is making sure that you give that customer A1 service from the minute they walk in the door to how you welcome them to when they leave to when they have signed the contract or they have bought the product or whatever it is that the I teach um, consultations of how to make sure that you use the open questions and and not the closed questions. And you'll see it many times. You go in for furniture and they go in and have a look at the furniture and have a look and, and the salesperson will take you through and all that, but they ma- they won't get, okay, when would you like to have it delivered? Mm. Yeah. You go, you've got to close the sale. Yeah. And so it, regardless as to where it is, and, but McDonald's do this really well. Do you want fries with this? You know, they, they finish it off. And this yeah. is what we need to be teaching the big businesses and little businesses because big businesses I in, in corporate is that they can absorb a number of mistakes. Small businesses can't. So when it comes to brain thinking, I help them, like often if they're able to, do the HBDI, understand where they're going, what their demographics are, what their customers are actually looking for and then delivering what their customer actually wants rather than you selling what you think they need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating once you start um, drilling down into all the business stuff and then how that 
equates for a business owner and what that looks like for a customer. So I know as a middle-aged woman that there's some shops that I walk into and there will be no acknowledgement whatsoever that I've walked into the shop. And I can walk around, look at the clothes, and I genuinely wanted to spend my money in that shop, but no one's come near me, no one's acknowledged my presence in that shop, so I'll walk out again. Exactly. That's a loss of income for the business and you will remember that shop that didn't uh, welcome you and you won't go back and you'll tell your friends and they won't go back either. That's right. The whole thing of customer service and customer experience is really important. It is important and unfortunately a lot of Australians don't get it right. They go to work and they do and I I look at it this way. I like to do a a scenario that when you go to a theatre and you've got the, them doing their play up the front. They're not going to come up and say, hi, guys, look, we're really tired. We've done 30 of these so far. We're still going to do your performance. It's only going to be 50%, but we're still going to charge a full price. Yeah. What would you all do? What happens when someone, a singer gets up and they're half drunk and there's no, it's not good? People have paid money for it and they complain and they get their money back. It's exactly the same in business and customer service. Every single one of your clients has to be your number one. You have to give customer service great for every single person that walks in the door, regardless of who they are, what they look like, because we should never judge anyone of where you think they can or can't. There was a classic example of a a friend of mine who was talking to another friend who actually is in business Mm -hmm. and said, oh, I love your curtains. I would just work it you know, where'd you get them from? She turned around and said to her, she said, you can't afford them. <gasps> now, that was, you know, thinking, hang on a minute, who do you know that she can't? But she didn't realise that this woman, this other friend of hers, has a lot of money, but she mm-hmm. assumed because she dresses very down. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem where a lot of people actually do. They judge by, by what they look like. I like Missy's comment. I actually hate when people approach me in a store. I only want to help when I ask for it. <laughs> yes, and I, and I agree with that. But there is a way of doing that, Missy, is that when you see someone come in, you can just say, hi, you know, please let me know if you need anything. And I don't like people following me around either. And that, that's the part I always say, that's bad customer service. Don't yeah. follow them around. All you have to do is just acknowledge them. And I'm here if you need me and leave yeah, it at that. that's it. Yeah. And like Miss is saying, I like to shop and have a look because I know what I'm looking for. And if I want something, I will ask them. But if they've acknowledged me and acknowledged the person because 99% of people want to be acknowledged, all you have to do is, you know, when, um, you know, they come in, they go, hi, just let me know if you need anything. Yeah. And then they'll go back and do what they want. And if you want something, then you will ask for them. I agree, Missy, because it is a fine line. But we don't want to be hassled, but we want to be acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kerry, we are out of time yet again. Where did that last... (laughs) <laughs> Where did that last part of the show go? Goodness me. Thank you so much, listeners, for all your fabulous questions. It's been a wonderful show again. And, Kerry, thank you so much. I don't think we have you booked in for the show next week, so you can actually have a holiday now. <laughs> yes. I'm not back until the 10th of January. 
Fantastic for you. I'm so glad that you're getting a break this year. It has been one hell of a year. And listeners, next week is our last live show for the year. I will still have shows playing on over the Christmas holidays, but uh, my last live show next week, and it's a cracker. I've got some wonderful girls who are spirit-led and who are talking about all things spirit and universe. So it will be a fascinating show. Kerry, thank you so much for being on the show this year. I know that we'll be talking to you again in the new year, but I really wish you the very best of Christmases and a happy new year and a wonderful break. As I said, it's been a huge 2019 for a lot of people. We're also closing out the uh, end of a decade and welcoming a new decade. And I don't know about anyone else, but 2020 has me seriously excited for the next decade. Um, And I know a lot of people feel the same way. But that's about it for us this week. Thank you so much, Kerry. I will talk to you again soon. And thank you, listeners. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. This Tony. Is- Bye. Bye-bye. Radio Tony, your safe space for tough conversations. Exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony, a platform for the unheard. Radio Tony. With Tony Lontis, author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Radio 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 Tony. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Back next Thursday from 7pm Eastern Standard Time, live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Mama.